So tonight I'd like to talk about dukkha. <laughs> Anyone having any dukkha? <laughs> and I want to talk about it in relationship to these three characteristics that we've been naming and pointing to over these last couple of weeks. However, we want to go into them a little bit more thoroughly. And so um, I'm going to talk about dukkha this evening. Uh, Dara will speak more about anicca, impermanence. And then uh, Donald will speak more about anatta, selflessness, next week. So we just want to, want to go into those a little bit more deeply. Because when we talk about insight practice. Essentially, this is really what we're looking at. They're called, these three are called uh, doorways to liberation or gateways to liberation. You know, it's really the insight into these uh, three characteristics, the revelation of the, the way things really are, the nature of our existence, as we start to see through more and more, it, it opens up the door to liberation, to freedom, to awakening. And so for each of us, we might go in through a different door. You know, a do- one door may, may show up a little bit more than another one. And of course, it's like Heather was talking about, there's different cycles and different seasons. So it may be at certain times, maybe it's a little bit more dukkha. <laughs> Um, maybe a little bit more seeing the impermanent nature or really getting more and more a sense of the selflessness or the emptiness of things, this self, uh, the, the emptiness of self-existence or the insubstantiality of things. And so, and so they're all, all really powerful entryways as we deepen into our practice. I wanted to talk about dukkha because for me this was the first doorway that I met when I started this practice. And it was when I first heard the uh, teachings of the, the first noble truth, very, very early on, you know, when we, we start our practice, we, we hear the, the fundamental teachings, which really are these four noble truths. And the first noble truth is the truth that there is suffering in this life, right? There is suffering. And I remember when I first heard that and started to contemplate that, something completely turned on its head for me because I always thought that if I suffered, it was my fault. It was my problem. I was doing something wrong. And I, I shouldn't be suffering. And I actually imagine that a lot, a lot of the time, I imagine that I was only one of the few people who were suffering. You know, I lived in a kind of a bubble for a long time and didn't have so much exposure to the larger community or even political awareness or social awareness. And so there wasn't, I didn't have access to that kind of uh, uh, understanding when I was growing up. And so when I first encountered the teachings and realized that there actually is suffering in this life, something was radically shifted for me because I realized it wasn't so personal. It wasn't so personal to me. 
And up until that point, I had just tried so hard to uh, uh, find a way to fix my problems, to try to make myself better, to be relieved of the pain and the suffering that I was feeling. And I would just go through these cycles of feeling better, imagining that I was improving in some way, and then another crash, crash of my nervous system, a crash in relationships, being lost, losing my way, feeling like I failed again and starting all over again, feeling all this kind of woe is me, self-pity, you know, it, it really was so isolating. I felt, oh, so isolated in my, in my suffering. I really did believe that some people were immune, that some people didn't suffer. And of course, you know, our, our, uh, our social media, which we didn't actually have at the time, it was more magazines and newspapers, you know, it was all, you know, elevating the celebrity, this celebrity kind of life, you know, that then somehow I was supposed to aspire towards. You know, very, very confused, very, very confused as a, a teenager and as a, a young woman until I heard these teachings. And then everything started opening up for me. Not only did the Buddha say that there is suffering in this life, then offered us this map where in the second truth he actually pointed to a cause, that there's a cause for our suffering. You know, how, how liberating. And the Buddha said that there is a cause for our suffering when we get caught in craving and attachment to the things that we want and the things that we love. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha says this, he says, craving is the chief root of suffering. Just like that, craving is the chief root of suffering. It is craving which gives rise to ever-fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finds ever, every fresh delight. Right. This, I love that, you know, this bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, you know, finding ever fresh delight, you know. This is through the eyes and the nose and the tongue, the body and the mind are delightful and pleasurable. Their craving arises and take, takes root. You know. So the Buddha is pointing very directly to where this suffering actually takes root and gives rise. And then he says that there is an end to this craving that cause is the cause of our suffering. And then in the fourth truth, he offers us the map, the path, the Eightfold Noble Path. And just this beautiful, concise pointing out for us so that we know actually what to look at. So this, so tonight I want to focus on this uh, first noble truth uh, that will also, uh, I think Oren might be giving, someone's giving more of a talk on the, <laughs> on the four truths. But this, um, this first one, this dukkha, so that we can understand it. Or as Ajahn Samedo, our elder, says, or st- stand under stand under the suffering so it doesn't 
overwhelm us. It doesn't take over. One of the, just a few years ago, I heard this wonderful um, way to understand dukkha and to uh, really get a, more of a feel for what it is. And it's a, breaking down the, the word dukkha, which is a Sanskrit word. And du means bad or difficult. It actually means it's, it's, something's not placed well on its axis. It's something's off. And the ka means empty, like a hole, like a hole is empty, like an opening on a wheel. So in that image, when the axis is off on the wheel, something's out of alignment, we're going to get a bad ride. So we need to bring that axle, that, is it axle or axis? We need to bring that axis back into alignment so that we actually have a smooth ride. And I just think that's such a simple kind of understanding. It's not like anything's bad or wrong or terrible or, you know, it's just that things are out of alignment. And what's out of alignment is the way we're seeing things. So it's our, it's our dharma understanding as we see into the nature of reality and the three characteristics that we start to be able to put our experience and our, our understanding back into alignment with the way things actually are. I just, I, I just really love the feel of that. Because I can, I can sense how that happens. And, and again, Heather, Heather's beautiful talk last night, just talking about the cycles of our practice. And the sometimes, yeah, there's a little, it's a little more bumpy, a little more choppy, not so smooth. And other times, maybe a little bit more smooth. And, and we just see that there, there are many waves and cycles of that kind of a experience. But as we start to understand a little bit more what the Dharma teachings are pointing to, it helps us begin to align our experience a little bit more. Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese uh, monk, he puts, it, he puts it kind of like this. It's so simple. He's, he has all these very simple teachings about wisdom and awareness. He says... If we think, we think of our experience as nature, nature is not so personal. Nature is just a process of cause and effect. Nature is not out to get us. Anything we experience is natural. It's just happening. It's just nature. That's the alignment, right? That's where we want to start to get a sense of that it's not so personal. It's, it's natural. It's just causes and conditions arising and passing away. Right? But yet we take things so personally, right? That's the anatta part. That's the self-thing part. You know, when, like I did, when I was first approaching these teachings, it was all personal, and it was all about me, and I felt terrible about myself because of the way that I was uh, imagining my, my life. 
but maybe it's not so personal. As Heather was pointing out, just this changing nature, anicca, changing conditions, coming and going. And we see this, you know, it's like we can't, um, we can't expect our experience our experiences to stay a particular way. As much as we would like that, craving for the pleasant ones, anyone seeing this, right? Craving for the pleasant ones, not wanting the unpleasant ones, and trying to uh, get our experiences lined up in a particular way through craving and attachment. We see this so much in our meditation experiences. I read this quote from uh, Thomas Merton. You're familiar, many people are familiar with him, an American Trappist monk, mystic poet, theologian, scholar. He had an early death. He only, he died when he was 53 and it was very, very sad, very tragic because he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he knew a lot about solitary practice, (laughs) that Trappist tradition. And so, This is one of the things he said about solitary, entering solitude. He said, Nor do I promise to cheer anybody up with optimistic answers to all the sordid difficulties and uncertainties which attend the life of interior solitude. The first of them, the disconcerting task of facing and accepting one's own absurdity. The anguish of realizing that underneath the apparently logical pattern of a more or less well-organized and rational life, there lies an abyss of irrationality, confusion, pointlessness, and indeed apparent chaos. This is what immediately impresses itself on the one who has renounced diversion. It cannot be otherwise, for in renouncing diversion, one renounces the seemingly harmless pleasure of building a tight, self-contained illusion about oneself and about their little world. Right? This is what we see, right? Entering solitude. Right? But, but in a way, we... We know this. I mean, we're wanting to look more deeply into what's giving rise to our suffering and our pain and our illusions about things, right? But yet still, when we start to confront this (laughs) more or less well-organized and rational life (laughs) and start to hit the abyss of irrationality, confusion, pointlessness, and indeed, apparent chaos, you know, it can be very disconcerting for us. And, and conditions are never going to measure up to our expectations and our standards. I mean, ha- have, we, have we start to realize that yet? Because as soon as we get what we want, what happens? We want the next thing, right? We got that one, (laughs) 
right? Where's the next pleasurable thing? Or what, where's the next thing that I can build myself up with? And then we're there. And then it's the next. It, it, there's, we'll, never, we'll never get there. The goalpost keeps moving. Right? So, so we, we start to see this or sense into it's many. Some people have been actually talking about this in their practice meetings as well. And then we start to see, too, that all conditions are unstable. Everything we, we try to go for, we hold on to, it just keeps falling apart. Nothing really can endure. But yet, we keep trying. It's like we keep trying to make things last. Try to make things permanent. We try to make our, our, our meditation experiences permanent. We think we, we may uh, uh, think somehow enlightenment is a permanent condition. I, I have this cartoon that I have on my bulletin board at home. There's two monks walking down a corridor in a monastery, monastery and one monk is saying to the other monk, I'm so past enlightenment. <laughs> it's like, forget it already. Right? It's exhausting. Let's move on. <laughs> find out what's really going on Joseph Goldstein calls this constant kind of looking for the next thing particularly in our, in our meditations or really wherever he calls it a, a deluded enchantment yes we're enchanted but there's some delusion there that somehow is going to finally give it to us that thing or that experience or that relationship or whatever it is. It's like we, we think that we can actually arrive in some kind of satisfied place. Right? This is what dukkha is pointing to. The, the characteristic of, a du- of dukkha that there is suffering in this life. Right? Are we going to arrive some place that feels good, where we feel satisfied? I don't think so. There's actually eight types of dukkha I want to share with you. And, and this is uh, Chagyam Trumpa Rinpoche. I mean, usually the dukkha is broken down into three categories, but, but he breaks the whole thing down into eight categories. And we'll see that as we hear these I'm not sure we can get away from it in our human physical con- and mental condition that, that we are. The first one is called the category of dukkha dukkha. It's the dukkha of painful experiences, the suffering of suffering. It's birth, aging, sickness, and death, that cycle, the physical and mental suffering that we cannot avoid as long as we have a mind and as long as we are in a body. There's no way around it. And, and I'm, I'm aging, and I could go through a whole thing around my aging. However, what helps me is knowing everybody else is aging too, right? There's nobody who's not aging. (laughs) 
So I can't really get so, you know, caught up in my suffering around my aging. It's just, it's just the way it is. So those are the first four. Then the second category is called Viparanama uh, Dukkha. I didn't, I'm not good at these names, so I probably shouldn't even say them. Um, I'll, it's a vip, viparinama, viparinama dukkha. And this is the dukkha of the changing nature of things. The dukkha of change. And this includes the fifth one, which is encountering what is unpleasant and tr- trying, trying to get away from it. The sixth one is being separated from what's pleasant and trying to hold on to it (laughs) while it's changing. (laughs) And the seventh one is not getting what we want. Not not getting what we want. (laughs) This is constant. We don't get what we want because things are out of our control. And it's frustrating and it's exhausting. And the last one is Sankara Dukkha. And this one has to do with the Dukkha of conditioned experience. And, and it's an all-pervasive suffering. It's called general misery. <laughs> because things are just coming and going, coming and going just all the time and we're being impinged upon through the five senses in our mind and it's, it's, it's constant. And when we really get quiet and we start to feel and sense our experience, sometimes that impingement is just too much. We want it to stop. Just stop. I, it's enough. That's why it's called general misery. <laughs> And so because of these eight kinds of dukkha, it's a basic unsatisfactoriness that pervades all existence, all forms of life. Because all forms of life are changing. They're impermanent without any core or substance. I mean, all of this is right here. You know, we don't have to wait and you know, wait till after the retreat or wait till we go anywhere, anywhere else. It's all right here. And when we start to reflect on this, it's, maybe it's just not so personal anymore, right? It's just, it's just not so personal. We're in this together. We share this. It's, we're in a unified humanity here. We know that all beings face potential suffering and loss. We're all alike, no matter what the outer appearance of things. We so easily get tricked and imagine somehow other people don't have the kind of suffering, you know, don't have the kind of suffering that I have getting into that comparison and judgment. I'm looking for this one quote. Oh, it doesn't be, it's not here. It's okay. 
When I was here um, teaching a retreat last October, uh, not uh, 2017, so two years ago, um, the fires in Santa Rosa about an hour away broke out. Oh, this was here. It broke out here. And um, it, was, it was awful. It was really awful. And the, um, not only was all that uh, suffering happening up in uh, an hour away in Santa Rosa, but also uh, we were getting all the smoke here. So, so we were um, wearing masks most of the time. It was October and it was warm and um, it was hard to breathe. We couldn't really open the windows and um, it was very, very, very painful. But not just our own suffering, but knowing the suffering that was going on not so far away and also not knowing whether, because it was so dry, it had been dry, not like it is right now, so, so absolutely uh, dry and also from about four years of drought, just always wondering whether the uh, fires were going to start, start up in the hills and just come right down and just sweep through all of this area here. So we were really on edge. And I was teaching a retreat on compassion and equanimity. <laughs> so it was, it was really uh, uh, a good, good fuel for my teaching because I was right in it right, and having to practice it and really supporting others who were practicing as well. And um, it was just a perfect storm. You know, it was four years of drought. Everything was as dry as a bone. And they, we had a very strong windstorm which started knocking over some of the electric poles is, is how it's understood. And so started massive fires. And the smoke here was worse than Beijing. Yeah, it was so, so bad. And, and one of the women on the retreat, it was an old, old yogi who's been here many, many times, and she would always come to Spirit Rock for her refuge, just as many of us do. We come here because this is a refuge for us. And I'll never forget when she said to me, she said, Sharda, Spirit Rock is no longer my refuge. This isn't my refuge anymore. And it's not her refuge because we don't know. We, she doesn't know. You know, maybe, maybe it would be for a time, but anything can happen. And so in a way, it wakes us up, you know. It's like, can we really depend on these outer refuges that we've depended on so, so much? And maybe it wakes us up, so we have to find a deeper refuge in our own heart, in our own being, in our own mind. There was this um, article in the paper soon after the fires, when the fires went out. And I was just so, it was was just a local paper and I was just, it really touched me to read this because it just, there was such a, there was a piece of dharma here. Like this person who they were interviewing was like awake. And I wanted to read this to you. Um, It was the, the Hibbards. The Hibbards belong to dozens of residents whose homes now stand next to the blackened wreckage from the October 9th Tubbs fire. 
their properties, which suffered various degrees of damage but remained intact, lie along the edges of more than a thousand tract homes destroyed in the northwest Santa Rosa neighborhood of Coffee Park. In a backyard without fences, in a neighborhood without houses, Mike Hibbard stained his deck's railing, hoping to preserve the sanded old-growth redwood from the impending rain. Kind of heartbreaking. From time to time, Tuesday, he looked beyond a red toddler swing at the burned-out hulks of a Volkswagen bus, an SUV, and a jet ski whose trailer tires somehow hadn't melted. In the background were chimney stacks, the only standing remains of a hundred homes ruined within a few blocks of his home. Hibbert, 69-year-old grandfather of five, said to his wife, said, said his wife Leslie would like him to build a new fence to hide what happened to their neighborhood. And he said, but there's no fence tall enough. Right? There's no fence tall enough. And I was so moved by that. Because that's what we try to do, right? We try to build fences, we try to build walls, we try to build, you know, walls around our heart to keep it out. Keep it out so we don't have to see it, we don't have to touch it, we don't have to interact with the painful. So that when he said, but there's no fence tall enough, just really understood something there. Not going to keep it out. Leslie, we're not going to keep it out. (laughs) We're going to know it's on the other side of that fence, right? It's challenging to let the truth in, that things are really out of our control. And... Yet when the dukkha arises, we are impacted. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter to what degree it is. We feel. We, we have a human heart. We feel grief. We feel loss. We feel the pain of, of, of losing our loved ones, of not getting the things we want, of not being able to control our experiences. But what's so interesting is this grief and loss strips us of the props we construct that gives meaning to our lives or makes us somehow feel special or entitled or privileged. You know, they're just props. We're all in this together, right? Things are tumbling down. Things are falling apart moment to moment. I remember, too, reading something in the paper around a long time ago around Hurricane Katrina. Terrible, another terrible crisis in New Orleans. And I remember reading this little tiny article about this man who was very wealthy, very privileged white man, and he found himself pushing a shopping cart with all his few belongings because his home and his uh, everything got destroyed and he's walking down the street pushing a chop- shopping cart with a few belongings and he said, I never imagined this would be me, right? 
how, and all, maybe all the, the projections, the judgments he may have had, this man just projecting here, but about other people who didn't have a home, didn't have any place to live, maybe pushing a shopping cart down the street. And now he was, you know? Jack Cornfield said once that karma happens so quickly like the swish of a horse's tail. Like the swish of a horse's tail. None of us are immune, right? Mirabai Star, she says, grief and loss save us from ourselves. For these fleeting moments, we have to let go into the truth of our humble membership in the family of things. We have to let go. I think sometimes it takes us a while to get things. You know, I know it did me. I sometimes I think I was so thick. You know, just years of hearing the Dharma and hearing hearing the Dharma, and still, you know. I remember as I was starting to have a little bit more acceptance of my own pain and my own suffering, I still, I still was surprised when I felt grief. I was still surprised when I felt sorrow or I felt, somehow felt like I had some kind of feeling about something that was happening. No, I'm supposed to be equanimous. Mind not moving. Just absolutely still. <laughs> like the Buddha, right? Sometimes I don't think we should have these images in the hall. I think they're very misleading. Right. Somehow I'm supposed to look like that, but he's but that's a that's um I don't know if it's stone or metal. Do we do I really want to be like that? Prajnaparamita gets a little closer. <laughs> it's a, a little bit more mother mother of the Buddha. Right? She seems to get a little bit more closer to this life, this liveliness, you know. So, yeah, I, I still thought that, you know, I didn't have progressed very much in my practice if I was feeling, you know, feeling grief or sorrow or, you know, if I was impacted in some way. It really took me a while to understand that the sorrow isn't a problem. You know, grief isn't a problem. Sadness isn't the problem. You know, actually, this is my humanity. It means, actually, I have a heart. It means I can actually feel. It means I actually can be impacted by what's happening. And it's, it took me so long. You know, somehow, you know, especially with these teachings, somehow all these um, kind of elevated qualities that we're supposed to be developing. And then we imagine, you know, when, if we're not feeling or, or expressing ourselves in that way, we haven't gotten there yet, you know. We still have a long way to go. But it's all, all getting turned on its head for me right now, you know. I don't think sorrow is the problem. I think our heart breaks. This is from one of my favorite uh, readings from David White, the wonderful uh, uh, poet, who says, heartbreak is something we hope we can avoid, something to guard against, a, a, a chasm to be carefully looked for and then walked around. 
But heartbreak may be the very essence of being human, on being on the journey from here to there, and of coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. Maybe that's more of what this practice is about. You know, starting to care a little bit more deeply about what's actually going on in this world. Instead of building the walls and the fences to keep it all out. I think that's what was so challenging for me to be in India, because there aren't any walls. (laughs) There aren't any fences. It's all out there, all birth, birth, aging, sickness, and death right in front all the time. There's no hiding from it. And there's also something so alive in that as well. As I enter, enter into it. Yeah, I don't think these feelings are the problem. I think that it's when we become afraid. When we become afraid and, and then the fear actually takes hold of us. And then those, we don't have any way to actually be with our feelings, to work with what's arising so that we don't get so overwhelmed by it all. And in that fear, as we try to keep all of this out or try to manipulate or put the wall around our heart and not feel, this sense of self actually becomes stronger and we lose connection. We harden our heart. We close down. We don't want to feel. We can become reactive. We run away. Right? And we hide from ourselves, which is the most tragic part of all. We hide from ourselves and then we don't have any life at all. Who's living if we're not even there? Right? One of my teachers who I've been following now, a Franciscan monk Richard Rohr, Very brilliant, brilliant man. He says, there is a falling apart of the systems where we have placed our trust. It takes courage to awaken to my own humanity rather than trying so hard to fix it, to keep the world from cracking. Then he asks, can I stay present and loving as it cracks? Can I remember that when I'm aware, everything comes alive to remind me who I am, how I belong in the family of things? So as things start to fall apart, and if we can bring wisdom, awareness, love to ourselves and others, then we can meet. We can meet it. That's what we're learning here. That's what we're exploring here. How do we meet our experience in the whole range from the unpleasant to the pleasant to the extreme unpleasant to the extreme uh, unpleasant, that whole continuum. How do we stay present? How do we meet it? This is the equanimity practice. Because we're in this together. we start to reflect deeply on this truth of our humanity. And as we do that, perhaps we start to feel a bit of the impersonal nature that we're sharing this 
We're sharing this planet, we're sharing this community, we're sharing here all these resources. And we may start to sense that we are but a small part of a larger whole. Maybe one cell in a larger body. Maybe the body of the universe. And it asks us to let go a little bit more of our individual individuality. You know, in the American culture, for the most part, there's such an emphasis on this being an individual, being somebody, you know, this building up of who I am. But I think when we start to reflect in this way, it starts to, we have to question that. And as we do, maybe our grip softens up a little bit and we can open a bit more to our sensitivity and our respect, our care for ourselves and for others. I thought I had these all in order. (laughs) I wanted to read something from Cynthia Bourgeau. See, I can't control this. It's out of my control. Here's Cynthia, see? Magical. (laughs) Cynthia also, she's uh, on the faculty of the Living School with Richard Rohr, this wonderful Christian mystic mystic school. And um, Cynthia says, step up and say, I am willing to hold a piece of this suffering with my own life. When there is a sense we are, we are not alone, that we are companioned in our pain, it gets easier. When, when there is a sense we are not alone, we are companioned in our pain. And then this starts to bring a shift in the way that we are with our suffering. Maybe it, it, it softens up, it gets a little bit easier a shift in the way I am in the heart, the heart of me. My heart starts to shift. And the I who demands for things to be a certain way gets a little softer. And this is the basis of the equanimity because the I starts to melt a bit more. The I loosens up, the me mine loosens up. And it gives us a whole new way of being in relationship to these changing conditions of our human experience, of our changing conditions of our mind, the changing conditions of our body, the changing conditions of other people's minds and other people's bodies. (laughs) Right? And then we're not just pulled around by our likes and our dislikes and our personal preferences about how we want things to be. This is what I think we're doing here. I think it's about equanimity. That's why I wanted to give that first teaching because I just, I love the teaching of equanimity. I think that equanimity is both the path and the goal of this practice. 
this capacity to stand right in the middle of things without being thrown off center. And that can only arise with insight. As we begin to peel back the uh, filters that distort our perception, that distort the way that we actually see things, we start to see things more clearly. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. And I think it's only then that our human heart can meet the immensity of this life. I don't think we can meet the immensity otherwise. Which we call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Pir Viliyat Khan, Sufi teacher, says, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. I love that. You know, this was a this teaching. You know, could have been the my, the one I followed my whole life. Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. Each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are sharing, we are sharing in the totality of that pain. A very sweet thing happened in one of my practice meetings today that just was like, it just made me my heart just sing this one yogi said when we were talking about dukkha today she said dukkha is a big ask (laughs) just that dukkha is a big ask yeah it's asking a lot of us it's really asking a lot of us And she said, you know, my practice is just here and now, here and now, begin again. Here and now, begin again, begin again, begin again. It's so lovely, so simple. And when we do that, then perhaps these moments can be holy moments. Maybe we start to touch something that feels sacred about this whole thing. Maybe we even can drop into a great mystery where things don't long, no longer make any sense to this small, limited mind that we have. How can we make sense of all of this? You know, maybe then we start to feel ourselves in this web of life where we're not so isolated, we're not so alone, we're not so separate, but part of a greater whole. Maybe this is what's being pointed to. Just end with a few words from Rumi. Rumi's one of the poets that walks along with us on this path. Rumi says, don't worry about saving these songs, which means these Dharma teachings in this case. Don't worry about saving these songs. 
And if one of our instruments breaks, it doesn't matter. We have fallen into the place where everything is music. If one of our instruments breaks, it doesn't matter. We have fallen into the place where everything is music. The strumming and the flute notes rise into the atmosphere. And even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. Thank you for your very kind attention. So it's just getting to be 8.30 now and have some time for walking in the cool hours or some continued sitting if you'd like and then we'll come back for our evenings sitting and chanting.